The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Latter-day Lives podcast. My name is Sean Rapier. I am the host, and this is episode 51. Yes, 51, which means next week is episode 52, and we have made it to one full year. Uh, We've got a special episode for you next week where we're going to have a really cool guest. We're doing question and answer time. Thank you to all of you. It's not too late to submit questions you have about a guest or about the podcast in general, but we're going to be doing all of that. And then we've got something kind of cool we're doing to celebrate that'll be a special announcement next Monday. That's all coming up. Uh, Before we jump into the show, I want to share a new review that we just got on iTunes. Uh, This is from user Brock Houston, and uh, the title of it is simply Love It! with an exclamation point. And it's such a cool review. It's five stars out of five, and it says, I'm a 17-year-old boy from Vegas, and I'm almost done with my mission papers. I recently deleted YouTube off my phone because I spend too much time on it. So I went on Apple Podcasts and found yours, and I absolutely love it. I've been filling my brain with positive stories from positive people. This podcast helped even with temptation. Keep it going, man. Loving it. Brock Houston, thank you so much for the incredible review. Hey, do us a favor. When you get your mission call, will you please let us know where you're going? And thank you so much for the review. We love when people leave us a good review. The main reason I love it is because it helps other people to find the more positive reviews we get, the more we show up when people are searching for podcasts. So we just really appreciate it. And you keep up the good work uh, getting ready for your mission. How wonderful. Okay, this week on the show, my guest is Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, and she is amazing. She is a marriage therapist, she is a, a psychologist, and really specializes in marriage therapy for LDS couples, both uh, issues within their marriage as well as issues of intimacy. We do not dive into the intimacy side very much, as this is a family podcast. Um, but if you are interested in that topic and, and intimacy within your marriage, boy, we, we give all the references as to where you can find her, and, and she is just so fascinating. One of the things I just so appreciate about her is she is so open in this interview just about her journey and her feelings, and I could have talked to her for hours. She is just an amazing soul. You're going to love this interview. And this week on My Latter Day Life, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my favorite sandwich shop and what that has to do with this week's episode. So that's all coming up for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And I feel so fortunate to have as my guest today, uh, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson-Fife. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Finlayson-Fife? Yes, perfect. Finlayson. Good. I I was nervous on that one. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And uh, we will call you Jennifer to make it a little bit simpler. Sure. But you, you are a, a doctor, a therapist, a counselor, and all kinds of great things that we'll get into. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So tell us where we're recording this from. I'm in my studio. You are where? I'm in Chicago. Well, Winneka, town north of Chicago where I live. So I'm in my home office where I 
see a lot of clients both in person and also over Skype. So I do a lot of therapy uh, uh, with LDS couples and individuals through my computer. So, And I love Chicago, but I have been there in February where it does not matter how much clothing you put on, how many jackets you're wearing. Oh, I know. That that cold is going to blow through you. But what a beautiful place Chicago is. Great, great area. Yeah. Well, we're excited to get to know you a little bit. Why don't we start off kind of with your early life? Where, Where are you from? Where were you born? And where'd you grow up? Sure. Um, I grew up in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, my parents were are Idaho born and bred people who grew up on farms in, in the Idaho Falls area. And um, they met in uh, 1958 and got married late in that year. And um, my dad studied uh, agricultural economics <clears throat> and got oh, his wow. PhD in ag econ. And so he took his first job. They had four children in the course of their uh, studies. And then um, and then they moved to Vermont for my dad's first job at the University of Vermont as a professor. And, um, and then I was the fifth child born. And so, um, yeah. So education obviously plays a big role in your family. It does, although strangely, it wasn't emphasized for me as a female. Um, there was, you know, part of the culture and the time of the 1970s and in the church and so on was not so much a focus on female education as there is probably today and more around getting married. So my bigger goal in going to BYU was to find a husband because there were very few LDS men in Vermont. And um, <laughs> so uh, it just kind of turned out that way. But that was much more self-driven than it was uh, driven by my family, actually. My mom only had one year of college. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah. so I've heard this before. Do you think, I mean, when you were growing up, uh, and I definitely have heard this, that there and I think, I hope it's changed now, uh, but that there was less of an emphasis and it was, you're going to go to BYU. If you get an education, fantastic, but come back with a ring. Yes. Um, but right. was that something that was overt? Like, I mean, was it openly talked about or do you think it was subliminal? Uh, probably both. I think that, you know, this was in the period of, my high school was in the period, I believe when, let me think about this. I think it was actually early college when President Benson encouraged women to come home from their jobs and to be full-time homemakers. And there was just a lot of focus overtly, at least in among my teachers in young women's and peers in early college, where you didn't want to put education ahead of marriage. Marriage was very important and becoming a mother is very important. And I think that I think it was more overt than for sure and unapologetically. I mean, yeah. I think now we think about it di- a little differently. But do you think that you those know. do you think those two things are that they clash that they I don't I don't feel like they are yeah. in competition with each other. I've never understood Right. You know, I mean and, and again, I I live through the example. We have the opposite where I I'm not a college grad. And my wife, like I mentioned to you earlier when we were talking, um, she's working on her doctorate degree. She served a mission, yes. you know, working on her doctorate, works as a, a an occupational therapist. 
she was very much pushed toward that. But also we have seven kids and everything else. Right. I've never seen them in conflict. Do you feel like there's a conflict between the two? That I, one needs to be emphasized over the other? I don't. I think that's kind of a simple answer, but I don't. I think that <clears throat> we have in the past, you know, thought very much that they are in conflict, that you can't really be a good parent and uh, put any emphasis on career development. I remember a song that was on the radio in Provo, Utah. It was like, you know, playing church music. And one of the songs was, you know, mom, you gave up your PhD in order to have me, um, which is kind of the idea. I recognize you've made sacrifices in order to be my mother. And yeah. I think that's kind of was in the culture then that, that women pursuing um, any academic or career ambitions would interfere with children's development. I certainly think we still have some of those ideas. And I mean, let's be honest, there's only so many hours in a day and right. <laughs> when you yeah. can, obviously it can be very hard to do, I think more than one thing. Well, um, and so, and there's a time and season for all things, I suppose. But I think that what maybe we, how we used to think about it a little bit is that that would be a selfish pursuit. And then that would interfere with the child feeling loved where I'm hoping the, the way we think about it more now, and it's certainly the way that I think about it, is that, that you know, self-development is a part of the gospel. It's a part yeah. of the divine plan. And you do have to develop a self, um, that is to say, to express and develop your unique gifts in the world in whatever form that you do. It's a part of your strength. It's a part of your ability to love well. It's a part of your ability to parent well because it also allows you to show someone else how to develop into their unique self. And so clearly there are real pushes and pulls around how you do this in a way that actually everyone in the family can thrive um, and no one suffers unduly. Um, So I'm not simple about that. But I do think that there's more overt acknowledgement of the importance of women's development uh, in their own right than there sure. was when I was coming of age. I, I, you know, I think there are two, two things that are positive that maybe just get misconstrued. The two things are, and this applies to men and women is that if what you're pursuing is to the detriment of your family, then there's, but that's men and women. That's education, yes. career, everything for men and women. But then also that's that, right. that, that you cannot be a parent without sacrifice I don't know about the phrase, thank you for giving up your PhD Uh, for me. You know, I I don't, I don't remember that being uh, something, but I think that the church has continued. And and one of the things I've seen, um, in fact, I, I just got out of church. We're recording this on Sunday and, and uh, our lesson today was based on um, Elder Oak's talk uh, from this last conference of, Hey, men, you're not the priesthood. And if I ever hear, you know, we should never hear yeah. you are the pri- the priesthood and the women, yes, you know, and, right, and so I think exactly. there's a lot of acknowledgement and a lot of strides being made, but I agree with very, that. very yeah. interesting. Now, did you have brothers and sisters? I did. I had four older brothers and then one younger brother and then two younger sisters. So, okay. Wow. We're a big, big group of people whom I really adore. I love my siblings I'm quite close to them. And so they've all been important people in my life. Awesome. 
Awesome. So you end up going out to BYU. Now, in your mind, so you, you kind of had that expectation, but in your mind, were you going out saying, you know, meeting a husband would be fantastic, but I'm going to BYU to get an education? Or were you, did that happen while you were at BYU? Well, the, the change happened probably right before I went. I, I really did grow up in the mindset that getting married was the most important thing for me. And um, I was afraid because I wasn't sort of your conventionally attractive uh, teenager. I, you know, <laughs> I'm sort of awkward looking and awkward in many respects. I mean, socially awkward. I, I really was. <laughs> hey, we could we could have hung out in high school because that was me too. <laughs> yeah. So I was concerned, you know, that, that this wasn't going to go well for me. And <laughs> I love it. And so, but I also have to be honest that, I, and it's part of the work I do now, I really was somewhat ambivalent about, you know, again, in the, in the period that I was growing up, and I can only speak to my experience and the kind of messages that I heard, <clears throat> you know, I felt like there was an enormous amount of emphasis on women, on young women growing up and getting married in the temple. And, um, and that that was the, primary focus. We would have, you know, lessons, um, or what they would call those evenings right now, but you know, where there's a lot of focus on the you know, women's leader would bring her hope chest and she would bring her wedding dress and she would, it was a lot of focus that this was kind of your end game, which excited me. I mean, I really wanted to get married. I had no, sure. I, I wanted that the good things that would come with that. But I also had ambivalence about it because I think that I heard in the messaging was that you would then kind of shut down your life. You take his name, you fold into his reality, you support his career. Um, if you're a good woman, you'll defer to his authority and do the things that he thinks you should do. Yeah. And I think I saw there was no abuse in my parents' marriage, but I certainly saw that role modeled in my parents' marriage and I could see my mom's invisibility in a way in the mm. in the relationship that she had a backseat now she certainly mattered i know she was loved i mean yeah. she she played a significant role in our family that was all true but i was ambivalent about taking her position because it was a relatively powerless position you know right and she didn't have her own identity maybe she as didn't much. she didn't and i think that you know my dad made the, the decisions and I think they both thought that was the way it should be. And so that got me kind of thinking a lot about, you know, it was also in this time that I learned about polygamy and I was in adolescence and I was really trying to figure out what was God's view of women and what was, I want, I, I believe very much in God. I believe very much in the church. I wanted to do right, Damn. but something about it felt wrong to me. And I didn't know if that just meant that I was faithless or something was wrong. And so I was trying to grapple with it, honestly, talking to God about it a lot, honestly. And, um, and when I was about a junior in high school, my grades were not good really in high school because I had never focused on it. I mean, my wow. main focus was getting some of the boys at the stake dances to notice me. <laughs> it's so embarrassing, but it's true. <laughs> no, this is the case with a lot of people. I think that your story is very common. Yeah. yeah. And so I just wasn't thinking about my self-development at all. So there was a boy that I, whose attention I, or whose who's um, who I wanted to want me back. And yeah. we were good friends. We did a lot of things together. 
And I kind of pursued it over a long period of time. And kind of, he was like this focus for me. And at a certain point, I kind of started to realize that I wasn't going to get his validation. And in a sense, there was a certain kind of self-betrayal that I could feel in my pursuit of his approval and and kind of not sort of taking my own self seriously. He, he kind of liked me being sort of there at his beck and call in terms of for attention and friendship, but never really was choosing me or really offering that friendship back in the same way. And so I, And so it was was kind of a function of self-respect where I started to say, like, who do I really want to be? And what is it that really matters to me? And how do how do I need to develop to respect who I am more? It's it pushed me into starting to look for my self-respect in a different way. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And so what that just started me on a trajectory of like I wanted to start studying more and taking school more seriously another piece of this honestly was I, I was afraid I wouldn't get into BYU if I didn't start to take school more seriously. Sure. And so I started to really study and found out that I actually was a much more capable student than I had thought I was. And it felt good to actually learn things. I felt good about my success in it. So by the time, and then the other thing in my family, um, we had to pay for everything on our own oh, wow. uh, for college. And so it was I would have to pay for it. And so it pushed me to get scholarships and, and to really pursue to basically develop my own capacity as a student um, in order to pull that off. And that's when I kind of fell in love with learning and school and had more courage. I always kind of wanted to be a therapist because I had thought about these things a lot. I I cared about them a lot and friends came to me a lot for advice but I was afraid that I wouldn't really be smart enough or capable enough of pursuing a master's and a PhD. And, and once I had gone on a mission, which I did a couple of years into my college um, degree, I kind of then had the confidence that I could really do it and that it was the right thing for me to do. And so I came back and I changed my major to psychology and uh, women's studies and then really pursued so when you look back at your earlier life, mm-hmm. I mean, you look back, I, I, I think, you know, we hear a lot now and, you know, I've been in, I was just released from, from young men's and we hear a lot in young men, young women that, you know, we're changing a lot and I hope that we're changing things for the better. Mm-hmm. Are you able to look back now and at least, at least see, okay, sort of the things I didn't like about some of the things I was learning mm-hmm. put me on this path. To mm-hmm. learn what I did want to learn. I mean, are you able to yeah. see the see the blessings oh, absolutely. from that? I mean, I, I think absolutely. Right. I, I feel like so much of what I've developed in my own life and who I've become and the work I do is a is a product of both the best things that growing up in the church gave me, as well as some of the conflicts that growing up in the church culture anyway gave me, and. Um, you know, I, I see very much how it's shaped my life in ways that I think are positive ultimately because of what I did. And I think them. you're a great example from what I'm hearing. You're, you're just a great example of, you know, you, you made the, I noticed you mentioned earlier, you know, I was thinking about these things and I was questioning these things and questioning my role as a woman in the church and questioning how God feels about me. And 
you kind of mentioned you weren't sure if you should be questioning that, yes. which is interesting for a gospel and a faith 100% based on a kid who had a question yes. about how God <laughs> felt about him right. and about what his role was. I that's mean, right. I, I feel like that's one thing we should all agree on is yes. for some reason we get to like, if we have questions about our role or about the gospel or about whatever, yes. for some reason we feel like we have to internalize that. Like, heaven forbid anyone should know that I have a question right now. Right. And yeah, that, it's, that's, that's absolutely. Kind of it off. Well, and I think, to be honest, I actually felt that God was really okay with my questions. Oh, It was yeah. more socially that I f- was afraid of my questions because I right. felt like it felt threatening to other people mm. or that it would make me in someone else's eyes seem like I didn't have a testimony, you know, or that I didn't have an investment in the church. And so I think I feared it more exposing it to the people around me because it did sometimes seem faithless when I would talk to my friends about it or, you know, that they would say like, well, of course you should just get married. You know, of course that's what you're supposed to do. And I would feel like there was something wrong with me that that didn't feel like a satisfactory answer. That's really Mm -hmm. too bad. I mean, the the truth is that you know, these questions and it's a little bit of a double edged sword. You know, we, we, we want to teach a family. The family is the central unit and you, you have a family and I have a family. Mm-hmm. We can't overstate the importance of it. And yet I think that, you know, I remember back when, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm in my mid forties and I remember kind of back in those times where everything was, yeah, you're going to get married, you're going to get married, you're going to get married. Mm-hmm. But there's also a message then of your entire worth is tied to you being married. Now right. what happens if it doesn't happen for you? Right. What does that say then? You know, I have uh, one daughter who is divorced, but then two other daughters uh, in their 20s now who are not married. I don't know what mm-hmm. their path is going to be, mm-hmm. but I have to constantly, you know, yes. Uh, tell them how wonderful they are and how great they are in the eyes of God and that marriage and family as important as they are. And they are, they are foundational and incredible. Right. But if that hasn't happened for you and that's not where you are, it does not change your value at all. And I think the church has gotten a lot better. uh, I don't know if I, I would say the church as both as a, an institution and us as a community, we've gotten better at recognizing these things. But one of the things I love about you and your mission is just talking about it. Like I have no doubt that your friends who you felt pressure were thinking of the same things. I I think that's true. I think it's true. And I think it it just felt scary to have someone that they cared about articulate or name them because it, I think it feels like that somehow you'll lose a hold of something that matters if you Mm. let yourself question. But in some ways it was because I did have faith that I would let myself question. I I really did have faith that God and goodness would prevail and that it could withstand questions that were sincere. And, And so I think that sometimes when we won't question or we don't tolerate others questioning, it actually exposes our lack of faith. Right. Like what if they're right? Like, I don't want to hear your questions because what if you're, what if, yeah. what if it, not even right. What if, what if the answer isn't what I think it's going to yes. be? Yes. And I remember, yeah. you know, I've told this story a couple of times, but I, I remember one time when I was a freshman at BYU and my brother, who was my oldest brother, was starting to read some church history stuff. And this was before the internet and all that, but he was reading some books and he was quite distressed by them. And he was talking about it a lot. And as a 
as a young person, I had no interest in hearing any of this complexity or his doubts around it because it felt very threatening to me. And I remember driving back to my dorm that night and praying to God and kind of saying that I was making a decision to, to take some distance from my brother as a mm. way of, of um, protecting my testimony. And wow. I remember having a very distinct feeling that that was a dishonest and unloving thing to do. Yeah. And that, that basically that the truth could withstand loving my brother that I could care about him and that what is true and what really matters will hold through, through the complexity that I was starting to see in my brother's questions and difficulty. And beautiful I, way to put it. Yeah. And I, I'm just grateful for that faith uh, because yeah. I think that's allowed me to discern the wheat from the chaff, you know, to be able to kind of look for what is, really the gospel, what is cultural, what are the things that are really we should hold dear, and what are the things that we can let go of? Um, yeah. I think that's kind awesome. of fundamental to our faith. I, I agree, and I think that, you know, uh, the, the, the funny thing is that the prophets and the apostles ha- have just hammered home more questions, not less. Yeah. And, and you know, and I, I like the way President Uchtdorf, uh, Elder Uchtdorf, yeah. uh, positions it now as, you know, uh, doubt your doubts, don't doubt your faith. But he says nothing about that doesn't mean you shouldn't explore and you shouldn't ask questions when you have right. them. Right. Sounds like BYU really kind of set you on a good path in, in, in this way. Overall, yes. your BYU experience positive? Oh, yeah, very positive. It, it was excellent for me. I, yeah. I felt that one of the things that happened is when I got back from my mission, I was they had just started a women's studies program as a minor. And I was so grateful to have that program come into place because I wanted to be able to grapple with these questions and issues with other thoughtful students and professors. And I really found excellent role models there of educated, thoughtful women who both had faith and questions and it really did allow me to develop my thinking that really shaped the kind of um, work that I do now. So the the women's study program at BYU was new. Yes. It was fairly new. Was it, were you there 19, at the very beginning? 1990. It was the first year. It just started. Wow. Yes. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So was that a, a large program, small program? I think it was fairly small. I, I don't know what the size of it is now, but um, it was it was fairly small at the time and you were taking women related, uh, like a women's history course, women's anthropology course, you're taking, um, courses in different, um, domains related to, uh, women's experience. Did did you find then studying, I mean, so you were studying, sorry, what was your major? I did psychology as a major women's studies as a minor. Psychology as a major women's Mm -hmm. studies as a minor. Did you find then, because uh, you're still dating at BYU, I mean, you, you know, uh, just barely. You... <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I was I went out once in a while. <laughs> okay, so but, but you're guys, did you find that yeah. guys got super intimidated by this? Um, it's easy to say yes. That's why they didn't like me, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I do think, to be completely honest. Um, 
there, there were a, a small handful of men that I met there that weren't intimidated by it at all. And that really were just comfortable with the idea of a whole woman, you know, yeah, developing awesome. herself. But the majority of the men that I interacted with, I think did feel a sense of, well, either they felt threatened by it or they felt like it was wrong that I was interested in pursuing these things. Interesting. Uh-huh. Fascinating. So I want to jump back a little bit to your mission. Tell us where you served your mission. Spain, Southern Spain. It was the Seville or Sevilla mission, in, which is now Malaga. Oh, I love Spain. What a yeah. wonderful place. Beautiful. Yeah. How was your mission experience? It was really good. It was uh, very, it was very much a, uh, a very deliberate and thoughtful choice to go and which I wrestled with God a lot <laughs> for that 18 months and really um, feel like I learned a lot of things in that process. So I am grateful for I'm it. not surprised to hear you talk about what you learned versus I think a lot of people say, here's what I taught. Mm-hmm. And then I think that the, the greater point is when we get back and we realize what we've learned. You, you, you come across to me as a true seeker, like mm-hmm. in all, in all aspects yeah. of life. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think the, the mission is where I learned more about myself, about the gospel, about uh, trials, about everything. So, yes, yes. Awesome. Awesome. So you finish up at BYU. Where does that take you? So in 1993, I finished and then I went um, to do a master's in counseling psychology at Boston College. So I had always loved New England and I Love was it. able to get in there and uh, get Again, because I had to fund everything, <laughs> I got a scholarship there. So I ended up choosing Boston. And then I ended up staying there to do my yeah. PhD. So I was in school there for about seven years. Yeah. And the BC campus, I've been on campus at BC. Yeah. What a gorgeous place yeah. to study. Holy oh, yeah. cow. Very much I mean, so. It doesn't get, doesn't get prettier than that. Yeah. So you were there for seven years? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, yep. at some point along this timeline, or maybe not along this timeline, at some point you I, get married. I did. I, so I met my husband like on the first day I moved in because he was, <laughs> <laughs> he was, <laughs> he was dating my roommate and, um, he, I was covered in paint cause I'd been, so the, one of the ways that I earned money all through college was painting the interiors of houses. And so the other love that I have is interior design and architecture, awesome. which was what I had also thought about doing, but decided on psychology. So when I moved into this new apartment, I promptly decided to paint my bedroom (laughs) and uh, I was covered in paint and he showed up at the door um, looking to come in to, because we had cable and he was going to watch the U S open while waiting for his girlfriend to come home. So I talked to him for about 10 minutes, introduced myself and I immediately liked him a lot, but I (laughs) kept that on the down low (laughs) (laughs) and uh, didn't do anything about that until a year later when she had, they had broken up and she had moved out of the country. So, um, and then I actually asked him out the first time. So So I I can't, I can't be the first person to point out just how incredibly awesome it is that you skate through four years at BYU (laughs) And come out single and then meet your husband your first day at Boston College. Like, that is one of the greatest things I've ever heard. Like, talk yeah. about just taking the stereotype and throwing it on its head. Take, <laughs> take that, BYU. BC is where I met my eternal companion. Right. Exactly. That is awesome, Jennifer. That is so fun. And tell us a little bit about your husband. 
so when I when I met John, he was he had gone to school in the Boston area, but was now working there. And so he was, um, you know, so I didn't meet him at Boston College. Technically, he was. Um, yeah. So yeah, but this is just a wonderful singles ward, and so. So John was there working um, for a company that did um, software engineering and he'd studied Eastern Asia, Eastern Asian languages. And so was doing some Japanese software development. And um, so um, we met and actually dated here. We are unconventional again. We dated for three years, mostly because of my ambivalence about getting married. I really wow. had a lot of anxiety about marriage and loss of self again, very much the work I do now, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, and so I, you know, I love John. I was, I trusted him implicitly and I was really afraid to commit. I was afraid I'd lose power and lose identity because that was really the model I felt like I'd been offered. And it wasn't until I really worked through that and came to my own, um, clarity and understanding that that wasn't what I needed to be in order to have a good marriage and that yeah. I could really, that we could really truly be a partnership and that he was a man that could really love and uh, choose a whole woman that when I got the clarity in myself, that, that that would be true. Then I was able to really have the courage to step in and, yeah. and I, I have to say I've, I've truly been happily married ever since. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah. a, it was a, terrible courtship because I kept breaking up with him and I, so much anxiety for me about it all. But was John, once was I really John, did put both feet in it, it's been a wonderful yeah. thing. Was John throughout the whole process sort of just, Hey, you know, it, what needs to happen needs to happen. Or were there times where he was sort of like, okay, maybe this isn't happening. Yeah. He's a good soul. I mean, I think that John was pretty clear that he did want me and he dated quite a bit and often been the lower desire person in those relationships where he mm. was more uncertain about it. And I think when he met me, he really felt clear. This is what he, this is the relationship that he wanted. So I think that he in some ways had a steadfastness about it that surprised even his you know, family um, yeah. that he was pretty clear about what he wanted. But I would awesome. say at about the two and a half year mark or whenever that would have been, maybe two years and a couple months in, uh, when I ended things, I think he felt like, I think this really is it. And I, like, I, I really am going to move on. And, um, and I think in some ways that helped me get the clarity I needed that, yeah, that you could I, lose could, I could really lose this person and I yeah. was not prepared for that. And so, that's it is I funny. It is a kind of a funny dichotomy to me within the church that as opposed to if you look at other, I mean, other religions in general or even just society, you know, that we we tend to be the the get engaged, get married in a few months. Yes. And yet we are the ones out preaching that marriage is eternal and that it goes on for eternity. Yeah. So we're preaching that, hey, your marriage is going to go on, not just for the next 40, 50 years, whatever. It's going to be, you yes. know, forever but you better yeah. hurry up and do it <laughs> versus yeah. others saying our marriage is only going to be for, you know, 50, 60, however many years it is, but let's take many years to do it. That's always kind of yes. a funny thing to me. I, uh, I, I used to think that that period was like a blight on my, I, I felt like what is wrong with me? All these other good people, they met their husband. They, they knew within like the first two weeks <laughs> and like, why am I struggling? And does that mean that there's something wrong with me or us or him? Or like, what is it? 
And I look back on that now and I think, no, I was doing, we were doing what needed to happen to really have the foundation of a, of a true marriage and a true yeah. partnership. But I think a lot of times what happens is people do get married quickly and then they go through that process that, that John and I went through while being married. And I think yeah. it's, it's okay to do it while you're being, while you're married. It's okay to choose your spouse more deliberately and thoughtfully, even if you already have two kids. I think it just sometimes makes it a little bit harder because sometimes people feel like they, they, it doesn't feel like a choice entirely because now they have a mortgage and multiple children and, and it can kind of infect the process a little bit. So sometimes I think we do ourselves a disservice if we rush, you know, each other too much. Sure. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I think especially that the, the societal pressure, now there are certain reasons for sure. getting married once you both do know. Yes. But I do think that the, the Mormon societal pressure of here is the template and here, and if you go beyond this, then it's right. for sure there's a problem. Yes. Uh, again, I, I think that what I, what I keep hearing from you and that I just love is that all these things that are changing, you were questioning throughout your life. Mm-hmm. And these are, these are things that are important that we talk about. And I love the fact that you are willing to be open and talk about it because I guarantee you we have listeners listening to this right now who are thinking, yeah, I thought that. Or I've right. felt that. Sure. I just didn't think I could say it because I thought it made me, right. you know, weird or different. It's funny that there is peer pressure within the church. Oh, you know, absolutely. It really is. So you've kind yes. of taken this now. And now I really, I feel like I understand you so much better. I did a lot of reading about you and, and listened to you on some other podcasts. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, kind of embarked on this mission now. Mm-hmm. Um, and And correct me if I'm misstating any of what you do, but Mm -hmm. from what I see, you are really out there now empowering LDS couples Mm -hmm. and LDS women Mm -hmm. in areas that maybe people aren't comfortable talking about or maybe are struggling with. Talk a little bit about your work and and what you do now. So I do, you know, a lot of work around just helping LDS couples in general around their capacity for intimacy both physical intimacy, but even just emotional intimacy. And, you know, many of us kind of fall into a role-based marriage where you're the provider, you have the children. uh, These are different jobs at church and so on, but not an intimate marriage, like that we really know each other. We are Mm -hmm. really friends. We really choose one another and we'll have a marriage in which two people thrive. And I think that, you know, obviously throughout time, there have been many different kinds of marriages, meaning there are role-based marriages. There are marriages that are just about survival. There are arranged marriages. Um, you know, people on the frontier were not thinking so much about intimacy as they were survival. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I understand yeah. there's a lot of ways for couples to come together and to create a family. But I think people today are looking for intimate marriages. They, they want a sense of having a friend, yeah. uh, someone that knows them and understands them. And I think, you know, the, the, the best forms of intimate expression are in that sense of deep friendship. And so I'm helping people in my work to really apply the kind of core gospel principles to their understanding of what's happening in their marriage and why awesome. it hurts. So helping people to understand how to develop themselves 
more in the context of their marriage to be more capable of love and being loved. And, you know, I think this has a lot to do with um, self-development and integrity of self that, and it's a little hard to explain quickly what I mean by that, but you really have to have, you know, as, as human beings, we want two things. We want to belong to one another, but we also want to belong to ourselves. We want to do what I think is the core and fundamental to the gospel is to um, fulfill the measure of our creation, to develop the gifts that we've been given. And I think what was a false tradition that's been in, in church culture has been the idea that the man should develop his gifts and the woman should support that. (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> I've never thought of it that way, but I think you're right. I think some yeah. parts of our culture that happen. Yeah, absolutely. And and that that's somehow divine and how it should be rather than an equally yoked couple. And if you're going to be equally yoked, well, then the development of both people matters. And you will make sacrifices for the development of the other person, but it goes both directions. Right. It, it's not just a woman as support staff to the man show. And so mm. I think I, that I've never heard that phrase, by the way. And I am writing this down as we are speaking an equally yeah. yoked relationship. Yeah. What a wonderful way to look at that. Yes. That is, a, that is awesome. Yeah. And I think that that what it takes for us to learn to create that, which, you know, let's be honest, this is this is against natural man. To create that. I mean, our immature responses are about either domination or submission to either dominate another person or to just yield to another person. But those both are immature responses that keep us from really developing the best in ourselves. When we really are trying to create a marriage in which two people thrive, it's, it's, it's linked part and parcel to your spiritual development. In my opinion, it helps you to start to really understand what it means to love what it is to be godly. Yeah. I just love all of this. And I love that you're, that you are proclaiming it. And this is what people need for our listeners. um, Jennifer and I talked uh, earlier and we are a a family show, but I would guide you toward uh, Dr. Finlayson Fife's website. Um, One of the areas that, that she specializes in is physical intimacy uh, for women. And she does conferences and all kinds of resources that she has, which is something that we are not super comfortable talking about within the church. And something that I, as a man, am not super comfortable talking about right now as I'm talking about it. No, I'm kidding about that. <laughs> but, um, but we won't go into depth on that. But but if you are, uh, for our, our female listeners, if you're interested in learning more about the physical intimacy that Dr. Finlayson Fife talks about, especially, I think it's hard, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think it's hard for for a lot of women to want to understand physical intimacy and explore it because because everywhere that she's going to go, they're going to have a point of view outside of the gospel. So here you have married gospel principles and principles 100% in line with the gospel that enrich, that uplift, and that point toward Heavenly Father Yes. Within within the bounds of physical intimacy within a marriage. Am, am yes. I right in that? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And uh, so I think that 
I'm absolutely looking at sort of the core. I mean, our faith and our theology is amazing in terms of its core principles and how much we embrace the body as fundamental to our faith, where many Christian faiths see the body as an impediment or a threat to spirituality. We actually see it as necessary for mm. spiritual development. So I think one of the reasons why many times we, we are reluctant to get help or information on this front is because we distrust the source outside of the church. But I think another reason why oftentimes women don't want to learn about this is because if you go back to that model I was talking about, this the man show and the woman's the support stuff. Yeah. If she sees her own capacity for into physical intimacy in that same model, she doesn't want to learn about it because nobody wants to just be propping up another person for life. Uh, interesting. And so the, you know, I'm doing a three day um, retreat in Utah in September for women. And the focus is on being a whole self, a whole woman, how to develop your desires, your unique gifts, how to be truer to your own authentic self and how to be more integrated with your physicality and capacity for intimacy within that same frame of self. And so it's, awesome. um, it's a, it's a great, it's a great retreat. The women and love it. For those who are interested in learning about it, uh, the website is finlayson-fife.com. That's F-I-N-L-A-Y-S-O-N-Fife.com. And there are actually all kinds of resources there. And what's impressive to me is you, you've taken this area of specialty, uh, working with LDS couples and LDS women specifically, and yet, when I've gone and done some research on you, gosh, you are so well respected within the mental health community. It's yeah, just phenomenal. It's wonderful. It's the kind of this is why we started the show is because people like you are so interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you just kind of we're we're kind of getting there on time, but I, <laughs> I did want to ask you as you work with with LDS couples. Um, and again, that's kind of your area of expertise. Mm -hmm. Is there something you see in LDS couples, a trend or something that you see that is specific to our religion mm -hmm. that maybe that we struggle with that maybe other mm. religions, not as much? Yes. Um, I can say both what I think sort of our, our strengths are and, and maybe what some of our limit or some of our limitations are or yeah, vulnerabilities. I think some of the strength that I see in, I mostly work with members. So, you know, I don't have a huge sample of non-member couples. Um, oh, okay. Gotcha. I mean, it's kind of become more and more my, it used to be about half and half and now it's like 90% LDS and 10% non-LDS. But one of the things I do see is that, that LDS couples have a, a, a rich social network. There's a, a huge mm. sense of having a group that you belong to. So when you're going through hard times, even facing a possibility of a divorce or something there, there's just this sense of having a community that you're, you're in this communal web. And sometimes that can feel claustrophobic for people. I recognize that's not, doesn't always feel positive for people. But when I look sometimes at the non LDS couples, they don't, they seem much more isolated. They feel more like they're sort of suffering yeah. without a, both a sense of a higher purpose and a sense of a social network. And I think that's a huge, huge resource. I mean, I think a lot of times it's underappreciated because people just take it as a given. Um, I think, That's great. yeah, I think one of the liabilities that I think we have, and um, I'm trying to think about which ones I would focus on because I can think of a couple, but I would say the probably the one that I see the most is a little bit about what we've been talking about today, which is this 
shifting model because I think we have both in our thinking a dual model, both the kind of husband presides and the woman is under him versus a, a equally yoked um, sh- partnership model. And what I think is a liability is that a lot of times people use the language of a partnership. They use the language of being um, um, equals, but in reality, they are in a marriage in which the man dominates and Mm. it's, it's easy to not see it because a lot of times the way that men, Mormon men dominate is they seem like really nice guys. They're accommodating lots of things. Um, and their wife is angry a lot of the times. <laughs> and so it oh, looks wow, kind of like the opposite. But a lot of times the wife is angry because she does feel relatively powerless. She does. And she's participated mm-hmm. in her powerlessness, right? Often she's kind of subjugated her development to his. And so there is a kind of unspoken hierarchy that's at work and creates a lot of suffering on both sides. And so a lot of times people can't see it because it's sort of in the air we breathe and we kind of replicate what we saw in our own families. And yet it's, it's creating suffering within the marriage. Well, that is great. That is a great thing for married couples to look at and uh, just wonderful words of advice. And this has been so fascinating. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. And I, what I love most is just that you are putting this all out there. That, you know, these are things that people deal with, they cause depression, they cause stress, they cause whatever, and getting it out there and saying, it's okay, we can talk about intimacy, we can talk about our marriage, and we can talk about our feelings and and our roles and everything else. And we can do it within the confines of the gospel. And the fact that you are marrying the gospel with the true psychology of it and bringing it all together. I just think the work you're doing is so fascinating and so important. So thank you so much for sharing all this with us. I I just love it. Wish we had a, another hour to talk because I think Mm -hmm. it's all fascinating, but uh, I want to finish up uh, the show today asking you the question that we, we ask all of our guests, Mm -hmm. which is what does being a member of the church mean to you? Well, it's meant to everything really. (laughs) It's just been, a, you know, just a fundamental part of my own, uh, of who I am. You know, I, I deeply appreciate growing up learning that I had a father in heaven that loved me because it was very real for me. And it, it felt very much like a resource for me that I had faith in and leaned into And I also took very seriously uh, from the gospel, which has deeply shaped my life, that that as Mormons, we are in pursuit of what's true above all else, right? That that's sort of a fundamental uh, tenet and aspect of being Mormon is that we are in pursuit of truth from wherever that source is, as Joseph Smith talked about. And so even though I would hold some anxiety about my questions, I still really felt permission in my relationship with God and even my understanding of our faith that I could be in pursuit of what was true and that the truth set you free, that, that, that you should have faith in it because it could really truly be an anchor in living in a complex and sometimes frightening world. And I think my faith in that and my, in my experience of a God that is 
not just supportive of it, that wants me to do that um, has been really anchoring in my life and has really shaped um, my ability to be happy and to help other people to be the same. So I'm just very grateful for those principles and how much they shaped who I am today. Awesome. Just awesome. Uh, Finlayson-Fife.com is the website. Uh, You can also follow Dr. Finlayson Fife on Facebook. You're very active on social media. Mm -hmm. You can also search for Jennifer's various interviews. There's There are great YouTube videos. There are all kinds of resources. Again, the seminar is coming up in Utah in September. Uh, For our female uh, listeners, I highly recommend looking into that. I also mentioned, Sean, just quickly, that there's. I'm also doing a couples retreat, which is pretty unusual for me to do it in Jackson Hole at the end of October. And there's just a few spots left, but but that's like a a five-day couples retreat in which I deal with uh, the relationship and the sexual relationship as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Dr. Finlayson Fife, thank you so much for taking this time. Highly recommend you go check out all of these resources. And again, Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Special thanks to Dr. Finlayson Fife. Wow, she is just amazing. I could have talked to her for hours. What a fascinating perspective she has. And I appreciate her being so open and sharing the things that I think so many people have thought to themselves. And I really highly recommend that if you are interested, please go check out all the things that she does, her seminars and workshops and her writings and everything else. My thanks to her. This week in my Latter-day life, I got to thinking a little bit about when we first moved, when my wife and I were newlyweds. And when we first moved to Utah, we, we moved six months into our, our marriage. When we got here, my best friend Mike and my brother both already lived here. And they had both raved about a place called Mama's Cafe. And they in fact, our, our first night here, we went to Mama's Cafe and there was a band playing in the corner and it was just a little sandwich shop and it was nothing special, you know, I mean, the everything, all the fixtures looked like they were secondhand and, you know, the tables had cracks and chips in them and the, the stage was sort of just built into the corner and I immediately fell in love with the place and we'd go see bands there at night and we'd go there during the day and Mama's Cafe was owned by these two guys, Skip and Johnny, and we became friends with Skip and Johnny and all the employees there. And we just loved Mama's Cafe. We'd go there all the time. And it was our place. It was our hangout. And it was so comfortable and wonderful. I have tremendous memories there. My best friend Mike, his band, Marvin's Garden, used to play there on the weekends. And we'd all go hang out and watch. And then Michael Berklin, who's been a guest on the show, he and I, along with our friend Andrew Munoz, started a comedy group. And we started performing there at Mama's Cafe, and it was just kind of our place, and it was a neighborhood place, and there were tons of college kids that would go and hang out, and it was our spot, and then Mama's Cafe got sold, and the new owners came in, and they decided that they would change the place. They painted it. They replaced all the fixtures. They put in a high-end cappuccino machine and uh, all kinds of new things. They started serving 
uh, salads and gourmet, uh, all kinds of imported gourmet meats and cheeses. And they really turned it into a beautiful high-end place. And it was incredible. And the food was fantastic. At least that's what I remember from the one time I went there. And I only went there one time because it wasn't our place anymore. It wasn't Mama's Cafe. It was something entirely different. And apparently, I wasn't the only one who felt that way, because unfortunately, a few months later, that restaurant closed and Mama's Cafe was gone for good. And it was really too bad, because what they saw as problems, we saw as character. We appreciated the rough edges of Mama's Cafe, because in its core, Mama's Cafe was awesome. The things that really mattered... They had a good sandwich at a good price. They had really nice people. They had cool music playing all the time. And it was a place where we felt comfortable and accepted. And unfortunately, I think sometimes, tying back into this week's episode, sometimes, unfortunately, in marriages, people kind of become like the new owners of the cafe, where they take a look and they go, wow, look at all these rough edges. Look how much better I can make you, and start trying to change their spouse rather than appreciating what makes their spouses unique. You know, I think one thing uh, about my own marriage, if people were restaurants, no one would ever accuse me of being a fine dining restaurant. (laughs) I'm pretty rough around the edges. I sometimes stick my foot in my mouth. I can be loud. I can listen to loud music. Uh, You know, I'm not for everyone, I guess. But one of the things I love about my wife is that she has not tried to change me into something that I'm not. Instead, she has embraced me and appreciated even the things that are really different. And I love that. She knows who I am in my core. I'm more of a mama's cafe than a a fine high-end place, and that's great with her. And for 24 years, she has put up with the little nicks on the table and the uh, hastily put-together fixtures and the second-hand things that make up who I am. I am like mama's cafe. And I think that's the key to a good marriage is knowing who we've married, trying to get them to be the best person they are without trying to change them. And I'm appreciative of that and grateful. And on a side note, man, I sure do miss Mama's Cafe. And that is what is happening this week in my Latter-day life. My thanks again uh, to my wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Finlayson Fife. And to all of you for listening, if you want to get a hold of me, please reach out, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at latterdaylives.com, or you can reach us on social media. And of course, you already know how to listen to us because you're listening to us now. Remember, it's your last chance to get in those questions before our one-year anniversary show next week. And until then, remember, as always, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening.